Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I'll be totally upfront with you. I toiled over this because this is the first time I've talked to people at work on a one-on-one basis, nothing on a wide scale like this. Even when I've discussed, I very rarely have gotten into detail. And so I really, like I talk to a lot of people and what should I talk about? How much should I say? Because there is, look, the stigma is real. Not as many people have it as they did 20 years ago, but it's still there. And for me, I've worked so hard and so many years at my reputation as a good, solid, strong attorney that I was really afraid to come on here and risk ruining any little small piece of that. But like you said, this is me. This is me today. And this is me who I was 20, 30 years ago. And I can't hide behind that if I want people to understand who I am and why I do things today. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Lassengame and I am your host. Today, we have my friend, Nathan Morales. Nathan grew up in Southeast LA. His parents wanted a better life for him and began moving to try to find it, but they lacked the resources to get him there. The neighborhood they ended up in was nearly as rough as the one that they'd come from. Drugs were prevalent in his community, so much so that it was easier to come by drugs than alcohol. At 13, he got speed from a friend's family down the street and started using it. He fell completely in love with drugs and the use multiplied almost immediately. Drugs became his whole world, even foregoing romantic relationships in favor of his first love. At 19, his recovery journey started with a cycle of being kicked out of the house, doing recovery steps, being brought back home, and then the pattern would repeat. In 2007, he pieced together five years of sobriety, but hadn't really made any lifestyle changes. Then a death in the family sent him back into using. He had all the knowledge at that point and decided to do it anyway. He started smoking heroin and then things fell apart again. It wasn't until he was left with the choice between living with a woman who would support his drug use and whatever else he needed, or being honest with himself and going back to his recovery life, that something changed. It was only then that he made the decision that would finally stick. After getting clean, he worked his way from Home Depot to community college to UCLA and then law school, becoming a lawyer where he is able to help other people in the profession who came from a similar background to him. This is a really important story. Nathan thought long and hard, consulted with many people, including his law firm, about coming out, putting his real name out there and telling this story. The stigma is alive and well, and the only way that we are going to get rid of it is by people of privilege and power coming out and saying, I'm in recovery. I've struggled too. One of the biggest struggles we have with stigma is that we are most conspicuous when we're using and then we become anonymous and we stop talking about our recovery, except with people who are also recovering. People need to see the other side of addiction, the side where people recover. They need to understand that we are in their families, their neighborhoods. We are their lawyers. We are their doctors. We are their dentists. We are recovering people who are part of the community and doing good things and contributing in the world. And Nathan is a perfect example of that. Please share this with people who need to hear it. It's a really important message. And I absolutely loved doing this podcast with Nathan. So without further ado, I give you Nathan Morales. Let's do this.
You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Nate, hi. What's up? How are you? It's been so long. Too long. So long. So good to see you. You too. You too. I'm really glad we're doing this. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm excited. I get to, it's like a podcast catch up for me. Totally. Yeah. I was talking to some people about doing this and more than anything, I feel like it's just an opportunity for you and me to touch base and say hi. Yeah. It's been a long time. Well, I often, it's interesting. I often talk about your story because our lives were very different and we ended up in the same place. And we went to UCLA undergrad together. And I'll never forget you working your way through school, how hard you were working and how many things were against you and how you overcame them. And I always tell this story. I had a friend. It was kind of, it's kind of like the stripper story where the, <laughs> the strippers like I'm working my way through college and everyone's like, yeah. And you were working at Home Depot, learning how to like learning all these skills. And you were like, yeah, I'm working my way through school. I'm you know going to be an attorney or whatever. And I remember laughing like I, I feel like no one's going to believe that uh, if they don't actually know you. Yeah, I was also delivering pizzas Friday and Saturday night at Papa John's too. So yeah, it was wild. It was a wild time, but I had to get it done. You know, I feel like at that point in my life, I was, you know, starting into it. I had gotten back to school at 27. I was newly sober. And for me, there was really just a sense of urgency where I don't care what's going on in my life. Like I need to get back to being a productive member of society as quickly as possible. Yeah. Let's paint a picture for the listeners about where you grew up and what that was like. So I was born in Whittier in California, which is in Los Angeles County. It's in East Los Angeles County, actually kind of right on the border of LA County and Orange County. And Whittier and La Mirada and East LA proper, that's that's sort of where my dad and my dad's family, they all came from. And then Whittier sort of being in LA County, I think my parents, you know, similar to a lot of people in Southern California, sort of had the Orange County dream, right? And so made a decision I was pretty young to move to Orange County. And, you know, everybody, a a lot of people in the world have an idea of what Orange County is like based on the OC and different TV shows. And, you know, those parts are there, but there are other parts that are a lot different. And especially those sort of bordering LA County, right? It's kind of like there's this invisible line between LA County and Orange County. And people think you cross that invisible line and all of a sudden you're in Disneyland, right? Well, that's, that's not necessarily the case. I grew up sort of on the other side of the freeway, kind of what we call it. You know, we had people, you know, families selling meth, drive-by shootings, you know, violence, things like that. So it was an interesting place to grow up. How does race or culture fit into your childhood in this particular context? That's always actually always been something that has been very prominent in my life and also something that I've had to deal with personally. So my my father, he is uh, he's Chicano. He's from L.A. County. My mother is Caucasian. She's from Chicago. 
Chicago. And so I'm, you know, half Chicano, half Caucasian, which made for a very interesting childhood growing up. The neighborhood that I grew up in was predominantly Hispanic. All my childhood friends, for the most part, growing up were completely Hispanic. And so not being 100% Hispanic, right, there was always, you know, I, I would be with those friends and they would be speaking Spanish and there would be different things that are culturally specific to individuals who are 100% Hispanic that I necessarily wouldn't relate to. So I wasn't totally a part of that particular group. And then I had Caucasian friends as well. And I wasn't completely in that group either, right? So there was this sort of feeling from day one that I was, you know, one foot in each group, but never completely in both, you know? What I always noticed was that you are an incredible chameleon, inc absolutely incredible from personality down to your looks where we would hang out and you would, you were covered in tattoos and had this one look, hung out with this one group of people. And then we'd go to school, you'd cover every single thing up and it was a totally, you could play that role. And so it sounds to me what, from what you're describing is this ability to, or maybe I shouldn't say ability, necessity to to be able to conform to whatever that group was because you didn't totally fit in either one of them. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's a fair statement to make and sort of thinking through it now. Look, I think there's something inherent in all human beings, right? There's like this need to relate. And I think really what you're talking about was born out of that sort of need to relate, right? And I had to, you know, it's tough because sometimes you use the word chameleon and it means that you are actually sort of playing a part or faking who you are. And I wasn't necessarily doing that, but I was tailoring what it was that I was relating to with a particular group of people for that particular particular group of people. And you're right, I did. I had to learn that very early on. And later on, when things got really bad, it was a characteristic and it was an ability that I had that really was necessary. And I think probably allowed me to survive through that time period also. When I say and think of chameleon, I think of a color match that is already within you. So it's a characteristic that you have that you are bringing to the surface in my head. That's how I see it. So not like, like you said, not like a fake person, but you pull out a piece of you and you make that the front and centerpiece, you know, as someone who, you know, I I had that in different ways. You're not going to be the drug addict, alcoholic, whatever chick. You're going to be the, you know, you're going to be the educated, well-spoken, whatever chick. And that's what you're going to talk about. Yeah. And to your point, you are both, right? Like you truly are both. It's just a matter of what you decide to show the outside world at any particular point in time. What did drugs and alcohol do for you and when did you start your journey with that? Drugs and alcohol were the quickest and easiest way to get that immediate connection with other people, that immediate feeling of, oh, we relate to something together. It started probably around 13 or 14. I was in middle school and it actually started with drugs in my particular situation because of the people that I was around and where I lived, drugs were just a lot easier to 
get our hands on at 13, 14. So for example, to get alcohol at that time, we would have to go down to the corner liquor store and we would stand out there kind of at the side of the door for hours asking people to walk in yeah. to buy us liquor. And there were, you know, nine times out of 10, people would say, no, you'd be standing there, you'd be embarrassed. And then either the liquor store owner would come out and run you off or potentially call the police and you'd get in trouble for soliciting. So there was a lot of risk involved in trying to go out and get alcohol. Whereas with drugs, meth in particular, I could literally walk down the street and there it was. No questions asked. Most people, when they make their foray into drugs, it's a weed situation. It's not often that meth comes first. How? What about it didn't feel scary for you? Yeah. So it's funny. It's not so much that meth didn't feel scary. And I'll explain to you why. It's that weed and alcohol did. And so basically... Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. So the history... So I have, a, I have a history of alcoholism in my family. And that history involves at least what was being discussed with me as a young teenager involved alcohol and drugs. And I actually did prior to like 13 or 14, I did have have a little run in where I had gone into my parents' liquor cabinet and gotten a bottle. I think it was like cognac or something just that you wouldn't normally take a bottle of and down it, right? But I had done that and then they, you know, I drank in that with my friends and they had found the empty bottle. And so what my parents made me do when they found the empty bottle was they made me write basically a report on alcoholism. And so I went to the library and got these books and I wrote this big and I so I I learned all about the hereditary component of the genetic component of it. And so I had this really sort of premature understanding of alcoholism and what it is. And that there was a very good chance that I was going to be an alcoholic as a result of my family. And then there was also a component of marijuana that was in there that I knew that was an issue too. And so those two things for me specifically, I was like, I can't, I don't want to be an alcoholic, right? <laughs> and so I can't do the alcohol and I can't do the weed. Oh my God. It's, I'm laughing because it's like, you know, you're a parent now as parents, we're like this, like we're going to sit them down and we're going to, and we're going to have this talk and the ways in which things backfire is so unforeseeable. Like, oh, we're going to do this. So he won't use those things, but he will use math. Right. You know, yeah, we're going to teach him about alcoholism yeah, and, that, makes, and the, the logic sense. in the 13 yeah, year old totally head is yeah. then going to go, well, but maybe meth's okay. Totally. Right? What was your meth use at 13? What did that look like? And, and where did that take you? It actually wasn't, I mean, <laughs> I guess any meth use at 13 is bad. I want to say it wasn't that bad, you know? Um, I, you know, I wasn't, I was only snorting it. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it wasn't a daily habit. I didn't put together a daily habit. I actually didn't put together much of a meth habit until years and years later when I started smoking it. So it really, for me, was just the entryway. Like once I did it, then all of this other stuff, stuff that I had talked myself out of, like the weed and everything else, that sort of fell to the wayside. I'm assuming at a certain point or for a specific period of time that it was fine.
fun. It was great. And there are a lot of great memories like many of us have. Then it takes, it starts to take the turn and the, the bad starts to outweigh the good. What did that look like for you? So I want to be very clear that the bad was immediately there. Mm-hmm. I have never been a good drug or alcohol user from day one. For example, in my particular life, not only did the drug use make or the meth use make the use of other drugs easier, but it made the commission of crimes easier. And so I got involved in committing a lot of property crimes at a very young age. I got involved with crimes involving firearms and stolen firearms, which obviously those are horrible situations to get yourself and anybody else involved in. And I also was not a good criminal. So, I mean, I was first arrested at 15. So the bad came quickly and it came severely. The first major one involved some stolen firearms. And when the police came to talk to me and went over to my parents' house, they found two or three of those stolen firearms under my bed, which happened to be right next to you. I have a younger brother, five years younger, a a sister who's eight years younger than me. And so my parents now are dealing with a situation where they have a 15-year-old son who's, you know, storing stolen loaded firearms under his bed in one room and then little, little children in the others. Yeah. So yeah, it was a bad, bad situation. So what happens after you start to get arrested and and things start to spiral uh so my parents my parents kicked in you know they sat down and made a deal with me they said look they ponied up the money to get me a lawyer said this you know we'll do it this time this is it this is the one and only time and they they stayed true to that and there were a lot of contingencies put on the money that they had had to put out for my lawyer and one of those was that this this whole world this whole life that you're living like you you got to change it and so one of the things that i did was and it was really forced by my parents is a a lot of the people who I had been spending most of my time with, I had to shift that. So the big shift for me after that episode was that I kind of ended up with a whole entire new friend group. In Southern California in particular, there's always been this real sort of interesting dynamic between skateboarders and graffiti writers and gang members and everybody kind of sort of gets along at times. And so at that point in time, I was more affiliated with like one of those groups, but I had always skateboarded and like had always associated with people who weren't necessarily into graffiti, but were just, you know, would show up to skate with us. And so what I did was I basically just sort of went to those guys where like they weren't affiliated with the graffiti necessarily as as hard as some of the people that I was associated with. They weren't into the gangs stuff. They were really just about skateboarding and having fun. And so I thought, well, that, you know, maybe mom and dad will sign off on that one. And how did that go? (laughs) I didn't commit any crimes. (laughs) That's an improvement. (laughs) 
but these guys opened my mind, my mind, my world to a whole nother set of drugs. Uh, they were really into the psychedelics and drugs that I had never really even been exposed to at all. So, yeah, the crime stopped, but the drug and alcohol use continued and actually increased. What was it that brought you to a place of at the first time you wanted things to change, the first time you wanted to stop using the drugs and alcohol? The first time I wanted to stop using drugs and alcohol was in 2000. I first, that wasn't the first time that I'd been sober or put together any sort of period of clean or sobriety time. That first happened when I was 18 or 19. So I guess that would have been 97, 98. I went into Stanton Detox for a little bit and then did the sober living thing for a while. And actually back, kind of circle back to what we were talking about at that point in time, because because so much of my life had revolved around drug use and not drinking alcohol at all. This was my, this was the period of time where I went through that, well, okay, I'm a drug addict. So as long as I don't do drugs anymore, you know, I'm, I don't really have a problem with alcohol. I don't drink that much. So the alcohol will be okay. And so that's what happened in like 98. I decided to go do that. And I did that for a couple years and that just ruined me. The drinking? So, yeah. The drinking wrecked me to the point where I was trying to stop. I was living in this little house with probably like six of my friends. I was paying rent there. I'd been living there for about a year. And at the end of that year, maybe a year and a half, my friends, all of my friends, all universally said, you're out of control. You need to go. The way it went down, it was, I mean, it was nighttime and we were all hanging out drinking and I'd gotten too <laughs> drunk. Intervention. <laughs> yeah. And belligerent. And they told me, you got to go. And I walked out front and turned around and threw a beer can at the house and my best friend, who I'm still really good friends with today, who I've known since third grade, runs out of the house and he'd had it. He was done. He tackled me and just started laying into me. And everybody else in the house came out and broke it up and pulled, pulled him off of me. There was just a wall of these people all just staring at me, telling me, you need to go. Like it was really dramatic <laughs> where I was like, you know, all beat up, tail between my legs, walking down the driveway to nothing thing at like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then you didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah, I didn't have anywhere to go. Then I, I was sleeping in a park for a little bit, not long before I finally got myself a bed at a sober living home. I had lived at before. I convinced the manager to give me a bed. So I went into sober living after that. And that was the first time you wanted to be sober. Yes. Not only the first time I wanted to be sober, but the first time I was doing things like getting myself into sober living. And once I went into sober living, I couldn't stay sober. And so it was not just the first time I wanted to stay sober, but it was the first time I was like, I was living in sober living. I was going to meetings and I couldn't stop drinking. I had the experience of relapsing in treatment, not sober living, but actually in treatment, which is a, a feat. And I wasn't planning to do it, but things would happen where the emotional impact of whatever was going on was so great. I would do things that would lead me to a situation 
situation. I would go in, you know, like you go to the gas station for a pack of gum and the next thing you know, you're drunk. And I think it's really hard for people to understand how if you want to stop drinking, how you and you don't have alcohol in your house, you obviously have to make a decision to go get it. And and what I always talk about is like somewhere a decision is made, but it is like a mental blind spot and it is more powerful than anything I've ever experienced. I think that's been my experience too, except for one. So the last time that I really had a bad relapse, I actually did and distinctly remember make I did make a concerted decision to go off the rails where I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew that I had a decision to make. And I i mean, I was in the parking lot at home. Like I remember making the decision. I am going to do this. But other than that, absolutely. I think that it just sort of sneaks, it sneaks up on you. You never, very rarely did I sort of plan the outcome that ultimately ended up happening. I think my experience, I don't know if this, if you felt this was that by the time I was saying fuck it, which is what you're describing in the, in the Home Depot parking lot, by the time I was like, I'm, I am going to make this decision to drink. I felt so hopeless that it was almost like asserting my decision in the process, trying to make it, trying to make myself a part of the decision that typically wasn't, I didn't know that I was making. How did you get sober from there? First of all, it didn't last very long. I made that decision at the end of February and I ended up getting sober at the end of April. Because it wasn't very long, what happened at the end of April was so shocking to me. I had a bad night that went into a bad weekend and I ended up out in Canoga Park on a three-day blackout where I don't like I don't remember anything for three days straight still to this day. I've had some stuff told to me about what went on, but I don't remember any of it. I was 27 at the time. I was living with my grandmother. My grandfather father had passed away and my grandma was really bummed out after that. So I was staying with her. She was living in Placentia. So I had this girl who I had been hanging out with drive me back from Canoga Park after I finally came to. She was from Dana Point. I had just sort of involved her in this whole nightmare. And so I have this this poor person bringing me back after God knows what she's experienced the last three days. You know, we go back to my grandma's house and I walked in to go in and the door was locked and I hadn't, I didn't have my keys. And so I was trying to figure out a way to get in. And my, the door has one of those windows where you can, you know, look through and see what's inside. So I sort of looked through to see if I could see my keys or anything like that. And I noticed that the whole entire place was clean. And when I had left four days earlier to go out to LA, I had I'd been smoking a bunch of drugs and so I'd like there was a, I had left a bunch of burnt up tin foil in her house so I knew my parents had been there because my grandma at the time was out of state visiting my uncle my phone was off because I'd been out of commission for three days so I'm at that point I'm like I'm sure they're trying to get a hold of me my phone's dead right the jig is up basically like they know what's going on they know I'm on a good one and the girl who I'd been hanging out with at that point in time on the on the way home she had been basically told me, you know, I could just go back to her place with her and she had money and she had just developed a pretty new heroin habit, you know, was okay with supplying both of us. And that could be it. Dream come true. Somebody who will take care of me financially, take care of my drugs, buy me whatever I want. At that point, I had a decision to make, right? I didn't, I was, you know, I'm in front of my grandma's house. I know my parents know what's going on. I'm 27 years old. This 
this girl's sitting here telling me, well, we could just leave and that'll be that. And that's what I first think I'm going to do. And so I start sort of backing off. And as I back off to go walk back to the car, for some reason, I caught my own reflection in that window in my grandma's door. And I just, for that split second, like caught my own eye and paused. I needed to make a decision, a final decision. I couldn't keep doing drugs for a couple years, drinking for a couple years, coming back, picking up those pieces of my life, relapsing again. Like, go be a drug addict and commit to that and live that life and live it as hard as you can until you can't do it anymore. Or don't. Or commit to this other life that you've started to build. But you got to commit to one. This back and forth just can't, just can't happen. And I don't know what the hell it was, but I walked back to the car and I told that girl to drive me to my parents' house instead of to hers. And I had her draw me off there and I knocked on the door and I didn't I didn't ask all the only thing I asked for was a ride to the rock center to detox. My dad, he he let me sleep on their couch. He let me into their living room. So I slept on their couch and then the next morning he got me up and, and drove me over to the rock center. I'm assuming that you you had a rough kick at the rock center. Yeah, it was not fun. I did you know, luckily I um at that point in time I had also been having some obviously because of the drug use, some pretty severe mental health issues. And so I was going to, I was enrolled in a program with the county mental health agency. I was able to basically, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I was able to swindle like a handful of Ambien before I actually went into detox through like the mental health people. And so I showed up at the rock center on like five Ambien. And so don't really remember like the first couple of days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But after the first couple of days, it was still pretty miserable. Luckily, I hadn't been doing too many opiates, but the Xanax, I'd been doing quite a bit of Xanax and that stuff is nasty to kick. Yeah. Yeah. Really. It can kill you yeah. coming off of it. Yeah. So like I said, I went to the rock center and for people who don't know, the rock center is basically, it's described, I don't know if they still use this back when I was getting sober, they call it a, a low bottom indigent recovery center. And it also has a detox. You, you go to the detox for seven days to get the initial you know, drugs out of your system. And then you can either go into their their treatment center, or you can go to sober living, a number of different places. So I went into rock center just on the detox. And at the time I was working at, like I said, I was working at Home Depot and I had told them what was going on and they had a really good substance abuse program actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Actually, shout out to Home Depot because they really were an integral part in my sobriety. They had an internal program that they put me into that made me accountable not only to everybody else, but to my work, to them. It actually really helped me. So yeah, so that's a side note. But anyways, I was working there. Oh, I'd gotten into a, a sober living, a buddy of mine, actually, you probably know, Kevin, had a sober living home in Fullerton. And so I, he, he gave me a bed at his sober living home. And at the time, this sober living home, it was like infested with rats. So like the whole attic was just, it, there was like a population of rats to the point where Zach, this guy that I lived with, he would like every night he would run around the house with a broom trying to kill the rats because they were like in the house. They wouldn't, I mean, it was insane. Anyway, so this is the state of living that I'm in, right? And the first or second day I got out of detox, I called up my mom and we were talking, you know, I was letting her know where I was staying. I'm at the sober living home. And the conversation that I'm having with her is, 
is, ah, oh, like, it's actually not that bad, mom, right? Like, I got this great place to live, infested with rats. I got this great job, who's like putting me into this recovery program of theirs, but it's all positive, mom, like nothing's going on. And she interrupts me like halfway through this spiel and says, hey, like, I just want to let you know that while you were in detox, I went through and read the Alcoholics Anonymous book. And she said, there's a part in that book that talks about those individuals who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And she said, I read this book and what this book book tells me is that people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves have no hope of ever recovering. And she said, she said, son, I think you are constitutionally incapable of being honest with yourself. And I'd been around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough to know what that meant. And what that meant to me was that my mom was letting me know that she had internalized the fact that I was going to die. And for the person who had given me life to have to say that to me, it was it was pretty heart-wrenching. And so I've really tried to internalize that more than anything. And like, I don't do this recovery thing perfectly. You know, none of us do. And I'm not, you know, I'm not 100% honest in everything that I do. But I really, really try and hold my mom's words to my heart. And I really try and make a point of being honest with myself. And that's like the start for me for everything today. Because if I can't do that, I can't be honest with you. I can't be honest with the people I work with. I can't be honest with anybody. And so my recovery today really is internal check-ins and external check-ins too. You know, I mean, because I'm not obviously like, it's very difficult to tell whether I'm lying to myself or not. So it's also like people who've known me forever. Hey, this is what's going through my head. What do you think about it? But really like getting to this place of like, okay, now I like, I feel comfortable Like I am being honest with myself. And now that I'm at that place where I feel comfortable that I'm being honest with myself, now I can make a decision about what I want to do in the world. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community. And I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lionrock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show. 
I, I always thought like, and I've talked to people about this when it's like, you know, talking about being honest with yourself and talking about doing these internal check-ins and it's like the calls are coming from inside the house, you know, <laughs> right, right, like right. I am, I am both simultaneously the addict asshole and the gatekeeper. It's not an ideal situation. We wouldn't do that in any other circumstance. Right. So right. there's this internal battle of these two people and it's like one person person is vying and sometimes they leak in or sometimes that idea comes in and you don't know, you know, it's making us sound real, real schizophrenic here, but like, you know, it's a constant auditing process of thoughts and actions. And then also having the community, the group of people who can say to you, you and your behavior right now, not working, not working, not honest. And it's interesting because I think when you're in program long enough, you learn how to hear that really, really well. And when I see like when I see other people who've never lived that life get that same feedback, I'm like, whoa, you like no one has ever told you any truth because I'm just I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm a fucking asshole right now. Like I need a meeting. I need to call someone. Other people, they're like, wow, you you know, you really handle feedback. Well, I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> like it was a lifetime such... of feedback. Yeah, no, this comes up. I mean, this comes up in my profession all the time, right? Yeah, because yeah. I work in a hypercritical, hyper competitive like hyper perfectionist profession. And so it is like I stumble across this all the time where I'm like, give it to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, yeah. tell me what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. Oh man, that's you ask- how I become a better person. And I know this in my core. So you decided to, you went from, and I think highlighting this piece. So you went from a guy, a kid who was committing, you know, residential robberies and crimes of that caliber to today, right? You're an attorney. I think a lot of people look, if if we were to take a picture of you at 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever, in those years and put it next to this picture of the person today, I'm not sure that the people that knew you at that time, right? And I'm talking about more like the authorities would believe that that type of transformation is possible because so often as drug addicts and alcoholics, the thing that people see is the first part where we're total pieces of shit, we're in jail, we're this, blah, blah, blah. And then we get sober and we kind of stop talking about recovery. Like we don't talk about the recovery. We kind of disappear and mainstream it. And so people tend to only see this really terrible public part of us, but there is this other part. And for you, you decided, I, you know, get a full ride at UCLA and then go to law school after, you know, getting sober and having these, you know, struggles. What led you on that path? What made you to decide to commit 110% to that path? Two things. First, so I did know, and I always had it in the back of my head that I could do school well. That I had learned really early on, luckily before the drugs or anything. Now, I didn't know what I could do with that, but I knew that if I went to school and applied myself, I could get good grades. That's all I knew, right? So that was the baseline that I was starting. The other thing that I was comfortable with at that point in time, now we're talking 27, 28, sober again. At that point in time, I felt comfortable that I had learned enough tools from Alcoholics Anonymous about how people live life, 
right? Because again, like one of the things that you hear in recovery a lot of the times, or at least I used to hear this a lot of the time is like, I just kind of felt like I showed up for life and everybody else, you know, God or their parents or whoever had given them the rule book and how to do the thing. And they had forgotten to give that to me. At 27 or 28, I felt like I had learned enough of those rules through Alcoholics Anonymous to where I possibly could do the school thing, right? Like I could apply myself to get good grades. And so I registered for community college and I registered for classes and I got all of the supplies that I needed before the first day of school. And on the first day of school and every single day thereafter, now you at UCLA convinced me to pull back from the front row, right? But other than that, I was in the front row every single class because that's all I knew how to do. That's what people in Alcoholics Anonymous had taught me. And so that's what I did. And I just went to school and doing all of that got me good grades. So then when the two years at community college came up, I don't know what to do. So I go to a counselor. Well, he says, usually, you know, with grades like this, you go to a much better school. Well, okay. How do I do that? And he shows me, right? And that really is the pattern, like even the choice of law school. By that time, I hadn't been able to really leave Southern California and got into all these law schools at places I'd never been to. And so again, it was like calling up all of these people who knew me and had been to these places and asking them, where do you think I should go? Because I didn't even have the money to go visit. Like I just had to pick a law school and go. And everybody said, oh, oh, you'll love Portland. You'll love Portland. You should go to Portland. And so again, I just on faith, okay, sent the school, said, this is where I'm going. My sister and I drove up here. I First time I stepped foot in Portland was like two weeks before school started. Yeah. What is it like? First of all, a lot of people don't know this, that if you have a criminal background, there are ways to overcome these things. I've heard people say, well, I can't go to law school. Or I can't follow my dream because I have a record. And I know lots of people with records who've been able to appeal and you know do all sorts of stuff. What's it like being an attorney and having the background? that you have? Like, how does that feel? How has that felt? And what do you do to stay grounded? So I want to talk about a couple of things, actually, because something that you brought up is really important. And I do, since we're on this platform, I would like to talk about my own experience. So I did actually, so I got into law school, graduated law school, passed the bar exam, and then the Oregon State Bar put my license on hold as a result of the background check. And so there was a period of time where I had done everything I needed to do, but because of my background, you know, there was a possibility and I didn't know what it was at the time that maybe I would or would not be able to obtain my license as a result of my criminal background. And it is possible. And not only is it possible, but bar associations, um, state bar boards, they are all very aware of the issue of alcohol and drug abuse. And in fact, it's prevalent in the profession. It no longer is the state where if you've committed a crime, you're done. People are much more willing to hear your experience and hear your story and hear what actually happened and look at where you're at now and apply those considerations to these decisions. And ultimately, I did, you know, I received my license, no problem. And it didn't take that much longer. Really, they wanted some more information from people who knew me today, right, to sort of vouch for me. But other than that, they were great. And they all 
also have an Oregon Attorney Assistance Program that's related to 12 Steps that I've tapped into every once in a while that also was an amazing resource for me at that time because they sort of, they, they help people through that and they've seen these before from the bar. And so there are resources out there and it is a possibility. For me specifically, I think the thing that I primarily want to talk about because it's the one that's primarily present in, in my life is just the imposter syndrome, which feels like such a loaded word and a key term these days, but it's real. Like I just, I don't come from a place where a, a large percentage of the people that I interact with in my profession come from. It's, it's a completely different world and getting to a place where I feel like I truly belong has been, I think, the biggest struggle. Where when I'm talking to my fellow lawyers, I feel like I'm talking to them as an equal. And I do feel like I'm close today, but it's taken a lot of work. And I probably have worked more than, than I should, you know, and there have been consequences as a result of that. And it all just sort of is fed by this feeling that one day, you know, I'm going to show up to the office and everyone's going to figure out who I really am. And that's when they're going to show me the door, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Has your response to feeling other, the imposter syndrome, been to just work harder, like just at the job, you know, just be more or, or always be proving yourself? Is that how you've coped with that? And if that's changed, how has that changed? My natural inclination was just like to go to like bury myself in the work. And if I can do as much work as possible at as high a quality as possible, you know, that'll be good. But then in addition to that, as I was saying, there's also, you know, for example, I, um, I currently, I'm on the board of one of our credit unions here. I'm on the board of directors here. Prior to that, I was on the board of directors of Catholic Charities of Oregon. That is something that I want to do, but it is also somewhat a component of my job, right? Because that I build relationships in these, you know, in these environments as well. And that potentially could lead to business at some point in time. So it is considered a component of the job, but it also sort of feeds this internal need within me to feel like I now belong in this place that I've arrived at. And I think I'm able to now more strategically tailor where I'm spending my time and energy. I think primarily because I feel like I've done enough at this point to at least feel like I'm a real lawyer, right? <laughs> Not to say like, I'm resting on my laurels. I, right. you know, I'm learning in my career every day and I'm progressing in my career every single day or at least attempting to, right? But I at least, like I said, I feel like a real lawyer now to the point where I don't necessarily have to just kill myself with the work. One of the ways that we can be helpful is by doing things like this, where we talk about the reality of who we are and that something that people don't get to see as often are the outcomes of recovery because it's not talked about because there's so much stigma around it. People are afraid for their careers. Or I, I hear it all the time. Even in today's day and age, people are afraid of, of the stigma. And what I always say is like, if the most public time in our our lives is the time where we're fucking it all up, then all we're doing is creating more stigma. We have to show people, we have to be in their community at their level and show them that it's actually more complicated than that. And that yes, that was a, a part of us being in that disease, but this is also what it looks like so that people have that to compare it to. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I'll be totally upfront with you. I toiled over this because this is the first time I've talked to people at work on a one-on-one basis, nothing on a wide scale like this. Even when I've discussed, I very rarely have gotten into detail. And so I really, like I talk to a lot of people and what should I talk about? How much should I say? Because there is, look, the stigma is real. Not as many people have it as they did 20 years ago, but it's still there. And for me, I've worked so hard and so many years at my reputation as a good, solid, strong attorney that I was really afraid to come on here and risk ruining any little small piece of that. But like you said, this is me. This is me today. And this is me who I was 20, 30 years ago. And I can't hide behind that if I want people to understand who I am and why I do things today. What you're doing is one of the most helpful things that you'll ever do with regard to this, because I have people all the time who have been sober 20 years, have been working on their reputation, and they're still afraid. The fact that you have such a good reputation is exactly why it's it's helpful to break this stigma. That's exactly why. Because people must, they must bring the two images side by side and realize that whatever picture of that addict alcoholic they had in their mind doesn't make sense with the good reputation and that maybe just maybe they don't understand or maybe just maybe there's more to it than that. It's not going to happen with the guy who's 30 days sober who who just got out of sober living. Those things aren't going to happen. It's going to happen when people in leadership and powerful positions with great reputation say, yep, me too. This happened and look what I've done and none of you knew. Maybe you guys don't understand. Yeah. And I think for me, the other really important message that a lot of times gets lost in this is it always seems to me like there's a bifurcation, right? Where it's like, oh, that's not you anymore, right? Like, oh, you did yeah. that and that's not yeah. you. That's and it's point. very important for me to make sure that everybody understands that no, that no, that was me. That was me doing those bad things. That was me trying to get sober years and years and years. If that had not happened, I would not be able to be the me that I am today. So this reputation that I built for myself as a lawyer, it is directly tied to all of those bad experiences that I've been through. I love that you brought that up because there's value, there's intrinsic value in people who have that background. And I think that's that's a great message, right? Like it's not, oh, I overcame it and let's just pretend it's not there. No, there's intrinsic value to me as a professional, to me as a mentor, to me as whatever, because of my history. It's just so important for us to come out and, and say these things and, and explain to people and explain to people that we are your neighbors, we are your colleagues, we are your garbage men, we are your firefighters, we are all around you. Those of us in recovery who have been through these things and have overcome them or are overcoming them or are struggling with them, we are all around everywhere. But not only are we, and by the we, I mean people who have gone through this and hopefully knock on wood, come out the other side, right? At least for today. That is the we, right? So we are among all of those people, but so are the lost souls. You know, I mean, my profession is one of the worst. I mean, Google, 
it's there, right? Drugs, alcohol abuse, it's it's awful. And so I am in a world among the lost souls. And if I don't open my mouth, where else? I, I don't know. You know, and I'm not saying like I'm the only one they're ever going to come in contact to. But if they don't know at least that I've like been through some of this stuff, you know, there's a missed opportunity right now that I may be the only recovering attorney in the entire law firm that any, you know, not to say that I am and I'm sure that I'm not. But like what I learned is that like I need to position myself in any way possible to help the next recovering alcoholic. I'm not doing that if I'm keeping my mouth shut in a world full of people who are just consuming drugs and alcohol. Well, you're amazing, incredible. I've always thought that. I still do. And it's been super cool to watch your rise to lawyerdom and finding your place because you do belong there as much, if not more than the other people, because you really, I watched you earn that spot and it's incredible. It's really incredible. And I'm so so, so grateful that you are willing to share your story. And I know that it's going to help lots of people. And if not us, then who? Yeah, I so agree. Thank you. I agree. And thank you. You've been doing great. And I'm, I've been really stoked to watch your progress too. So this has been lovely. Thank you for setting this up. This has been yeah. great. Yeah. Likewise. Awesome. Well, 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 that was pretty incredible. Producer Scott, what did you think? Nathan's story is incredible. It's, I say that every time. I can't say the word incredible. It is, um, <laughs> it's real neat. <laughs> it's hard because we only pick incredible interviews to do. So we yes. sound like yes. ridiculous saying it's incredible every time. But I mean, fuck, what are you supposed to say? It just is. Everybody we have on here, every story makes me inspired and feel a little bad about myself. <laughs> I just, I always just think, man, this person's a harder worker than me. You know, they, they, they really, they really flipped things. They really, they really did an, around. an amazing thing. And a right? face. Like I'm, I'm doing pretty okay at the moment, but if you just told me like, Hey dude, you're going to have to go back to school and become a lawyer. Yeah, I well, I don't know if I got that in me, you know? Yeah, I mean, the thing, you know, we mentioned in the, the episode, I went to college with Nathan, but I knew him from the rooms of AA before that. And it was so inspiring to me to watch what he was doing and how he had gotten a full ride. You know, he was working his way through. I watched him do this transformation and I watched him you know, I watched him use what we learned in program to grow his life into what it is today. And I got to, you know, see a little small piece of that. And then I got to see some of that online. And I can't imagine what that must feel like and how scary that must be and how many fears to overcome. And when he talked about the imposter syndrome, I like, and I try to put myself in his shoes and how intense that would be. And then to be willing to talk about it and be willing to stand up and say, I'm here to try to help break the stigma so that more people can get help. It's one of the things that I absolutely adore about Nathan. And I'm just reminded that that's who he is. Like he's still that person where he's going to do the hard thing because it's the right thing. And I just find that so cool. You know, there's a lot that we're doing at Lion Rock that we're trying to kind of break some of the stigma around this, right? Because why couldn't it just be like other medical conditions that people have? 
have where it's like it's it's your right to share, but it's it shouldn't be held against you that, you know, that this is uh, a part of your story. The reason it's not treated, people say this, right? Like, oh, it's like cancer or whatever. And like it is there is there is a fundamental piece of it. It meets criteria as a chronic illness. But let's be real when you're smoking crack and coming to work drunk and ruining your kids lives and doing all these horrible things. It's very hard to have compassion for that person who's doing this to you. And yes, you understand they're under the influence, but you can't help but feel so upset and so appalled by the things that they're saying and doing. And so I do understand the stigma. I do. But how we reduce the stigma is by showing that there's another side of that person and of that journey. And what just kills me is that the public part of the journey is the one that we would rather not have (laughs) everyone watch your complete spiral into nothingness. Like they don't get to see the upward spiral. And that is my goal is for people to see the upward spiral and see that there is recovery and see that, you know, I think there's more compassion for the disease model when you get to see the other side. If you, if all you know is your dickhead uncle who, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's a, probably a terrible example, but you know what I mean, right? Well, first of all, I didn't know you knew my uncle, first of all. <laughs> And secondly, that's kind of the basis of any kind of discrimination or biases is like meeting someone who breaks whatever your preconceived notions are. That's often what it is for so many people when they go, oh, but you're not like that. I think it's that moment for a lot of people to your point where it's like when you can connect the dots and go, oh, right. All these people are are more than a stereotype. There's, there's more to the story. And so people know, I know people who have become nurses, lawyers, doctors, dentists, realtors, all people who had to go through a board, who had to have some kind of review, who had to do the schooling before they knew whether or not they were going to get accepted, which is frankly cruel. But I know lots of people and they've been able to overcome their record. So if you have a goal and you've been sober a while and you want to pursue that and it requires some sort of licensing, I have seen it work over and over and over again. If you stay sober and you can submit paperwork showing that your life is different, then you have the opportunity to be in that profession. Ashley, during this whole interview, uh, what is on your shirt? I can't read it. It actually says, hello, beautiful people. Oh. It, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, we got merch. Yeah, at lionrock.life, you can go to the shop. And I, I bought my own merch. <laughs> wow. Thanks for calling me out, bro. Just got, so my spot to, just got blown up. Do you have to explain it to people when they ask you about this? Nobody's ever asked me. No? no. I feel like that's the point of wearing this shirt, right? Do I, you do it? Do you do enough gesturing at your shirt when you're walking around just so that people know to ask? I don't. I don't. But I do. I also have a sweatshirt and a beanie. <laughs> That also say this? No, 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 no. Those say uh, the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. I'm all out very comfortable. I just think everybody else would be more comfortable in that because if people ask the questions, they can just be like, it's a podcast I like. But for you, you have to say, it's it's my podcast. Exactly. That's why it's so embarrassing. Like, that's 
you just called fully, fully blew up my spot. So you're wearing your own merch? Is that... You could pretend. You could be like, oh, it's just like a really cool podcast. But there, people have told us there's like a resemblance in our voice, but like, yeah, but just like, ignore that. I need a podcast business card. Just have beanies that you can give out to people and just say, this is this is me. I and know. then like, what's your name? It's Courage to Change. I've actually had it legally changed. Oh my God. We are on the struggle bus today. <laughs> struggle bus i don't even see you right now you're just kind of like a figment of my imagination am i i'm in a closet talking to myself right is that right yes there's nobody there's nobody here i'm out of the closet god (laughs) that's probably not the first time people have thought that but uh, are you there are you ready did you should i should i try to awaken us from this slumbery stumbly outro we need real help if you're you better, still here, you're just a you're I real love pal. You. You're a yeah. real pal. And that's why I you're pre- here. Appreciate you. You're like one of those people that shows up for somebody's open mic night and it's like not going very well. And then when it's over, yes. you're like, you're like, oh, it was great. You were <laughs> so funny. Oh yes. my gosh. Exactly. It's exactly like that. Someone's, so. I'm gonna throw a tomato at myself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wake up. Wake up. And this is kind of topical. Okay. I'm ready. All right, Ash. So this is just like a story for my life. You know what I mean? So I was at the grocery store and the guy was like, so paper or plastic. And I was like, either I'm bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. It's making me sweat. This one's making me sweat. Just making me sweat. Bisexual. Oh, dear Lord. Terrible. Well, I hope that you have a better week than how we both feel at the current moment. I hope yes. you, I hope you've got some rest coming to you and you don't you're not a couple of zombies that are attempting to make a podcast at the moment. That would be great. I will be hoping for that for you. Ashley, anything you want to leave them with? Yes, I would like to request that people send this to their attorney friends. They may or may not listen to it, but if you have attorney friends, family, or otherwise, slip them this podcast, hit the share button, and spread the word. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.